Any questions about it? Um, go through it right at your at your leisure. Uh, if you have any questions that you'd like to specifically talk about, you can come to my office or we can talk about it on Wednesday, right, uh, anytime. Uh, but definitely go through it. Um, see what you think you could have done differently. See if um, there's anything you, uh, you want to talk about with it or whatever. Okay. We good? Are you coming back on Wednesday? Hey, just gonna, everybody's going to get up and leave, right? If you, um, all is not lost if you didn't do as well as you wanted to, right? Um, there's still two more exams, a final, uh, some homeworks that I'm going to start throwing out at you guys, right? So each individual exam is worth, oh, and then there's lab, which is 25% of your grade. So of the 75%, which is the lecture, that exam represents probably about 10 or 15% of it, right? So each individual exam is worth very, very little, right? So if you didn't do as well as you wanted to, uh, there's plenty of opportunities for you to make that up, okay, on the, on the subsequent work. If you did really, really well on this exam, there's plenty of opportunities for you to screw that up. Okay, so it goes both ways. Speak. Um, <laughs> the lab last class, uh, how, many, how many points is that? Uh, each lab is worth about 10 points. 10 points? Yeah. Each one is worth, how many labs do we have? About 12. Usually drop the lowest one, uh, so each one's worth about nine percent of your grade. So you drop one? I usually drop the lowest one just because strange things happen. So um, uh, each one is worth about nine percent of your lab grade. All right. All right. So if you did well, you evidently did the right thing when you were studying. So do that again. If you didn't do as well as you wanted to, um, we can have some conversations about ways to study that might help you out. Uh, studying in groups. Anybody try it? Did it work? Mm, some more than others, perhaps. Who knows, right? Um, if you had a good experience with studying and it worked for you, uh, don't hesitate to share. Okay, some other students might want to might want to hear that as well. Okay. Did anybody wait until the absolute last minute to study? Did it work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody has their own way, right? You got to chart your own course through uh, through college. However, you got to find out the way that works for you uh, for this. Uh, for the uh, for the class you're taking and for the kind of material there is, right? So, um, again, I'll be more than happy to talk with uh, with anybody about studying habits or, or what I think the best or better ways to study are if you didn't do particularly well. I've seen seen students go from uh, low D, high F to a B right throughout the semester by changing their study habits. Okay, so it it can happen, and I've seen it go the other way too. The study guide, like the study guide, really, really, really helps. Are you like do that again? To yes. So again, if you know the study guide inside and out, backwards and forward, it's not necessarily a, it's going to guarantee you success, right? But it would be a good thing to do that, right? Um, yes? yes? I mean, there's a relationship there between the study guide and the exam. I'm not sure what it is, right? I don't really copy and paste questions from one to the other. But if you know everything on the study guide, you should kind of do okay, or you shouldn't be surprised by things that you see on the, on the exam. Maybe I should say that, okay? So nothing on the exam should have been a surprise. I mean, usually students are surprised when I don't ask about something more than they, they are that I do ask about something. I mean, goodness sakes, Freddie, I have four pages, right? I mean, if I put all this other stuff that you want on there, it'd be a 10-page test, right? Um, I, I just, you know, leave it open-ended like that so you think that you have to know everything. And, you know, I pick four pages worth of stuff and I ask them, who, who cares what the four pages worth of stuff are, right? Um, as long as you got it all in there, that's, what, that's what's important, right? Um, and that's what the questions represent, right? Just kind of a broad smattering of various things that I expect you to know. And uh, I don't know if there's really too much of a relationship between what is on the exam and what the most unbelievably important thing is all the time, right? Sure, the important things are on there, but no, I didn't ask you to recite functional groups, but there was something related to functional groups on there, and I don't think I asked a thing about uh, some of that other stuff. So, yeah, I got four pages, you know? I could ask everything and we'd be here uh, for three hours on the next one. And I don't want to do that. So just by leaving it open-ended, you don't know what I'm going to ask. You have to know everything. And so answer the questions that I ask you and everything will be fine. Yeah? Excellent. All right. So we're still talking about cell membranes. We're still talking about cell membranes. Um, we just kind of got started with these different cell parts. Okay, We were kind of talking about 
surface proteins, and I believe we got through the fluid mosaic model last time. Is that correct? Did we sort of barely? Yeah, we did, right? I want to say one more thing about the fluid mosaic model, um, just to make sure that I was clear about what it actually represents. Um, because I talked about it this morning in my very early morning section, and I think I did a better job in that class than I did with yours. So I want to uh, tell, tell you what I told them while talking about the fluid mosaic model. So you have all of these proteins that are in this cell membrane, okay? Um, and they can't leave the cell membrane. They can't flip back and forth from the inside to the outside, but they can move laterally. Okay, that sounds familiar? So laterally, the cell membrane acts like a fluid. These, all these proteins can just kind of diffuse and wander around inside of this, of this membrane. They can't flip back and forth from one side to the other. So look at this ATPase pump right here. Okay, there's this big kind of bulbous thing on the inside and the channel that goes and leads through to the outside. This bulbous thing right here cannot flip up to be on the outside. Okay, it's going to be in this orientation and it's going to be locked in place in that orientation. Okay, but it can diffuse around laterally within this cell membrane. And they can do that based on how this protein is embedded in that membrane. Okay, what keeps this thing in place? Why, what keeps it from actually flipping around inside and out and all that kind of stuff, right? It's not anchored by a, anything uh, particular into place, it's held in place by charges. Okay, these proteins are made of amino acids, yes, big, long amino acid chains that fold and arrange themselves in the three coils and folds and then in the three-dimensional arrangement in the quaternary structure if you need it, right? Um, and this region of it right up here spans this bilayer, yes? Okay, what do you know about this bilayer? This outermost region of it right here, polar or nonpolar? Polar, nonpolar. You're at the first time. Polar. Polar, right? This is the phospho part of the phospholipid. Right, this innermost layer right there is polar, polar and the stuff in between is nonpolar. Non okay, those are the tails. If you look at the R groups, okay, on the amino acids on this region of this pump, these R groups up here are polar. The R groups down here are polar. The R groups right here are nonpolar. Okay, so that similarity of charge across that span of that lipid bilayer locks this thing into place okay for this bottom part of it to kind of flip up and go to the outside you would have to have this polar region migrate on its own through the nonpolar tails is that going to happen no that's not going to happen right um, so it's anchored in place by these different charges okay which are benefited to it or so or, or bestowed upon it by the nature of those R groups okay some R groups are polar some R groups are nonpolar Right? These R groups here, right, which represent that span across that bilayer are almost always going to be nonpolar, which is going to lock that thing into place. Okay? So it can move laterally all at once. Okay? It's not violating any charge polar or nonpolar relationships by moving laterally around in that membrane, right? But it can't flip. All right? So that's why we say it acts like a fluid. Okay? It's essentially, it is a fluid-like substance, right, with these proteins just kind of diffusing around in it. Maintaining the orientation, but able to move laterally within. So the fluid mosaic is why we call it that. Now the cell membrane, in addition to being a fluid mosaic, also shows selective permeability. And you know this a little bit already. We're talking about selectively, selective permeability. We're talking about what kinds of molecules can pass freely through it and which kinds cannot, okay? What kind of molecules are blocked by the phospholipid bilayer, okay? Um, in order to get through that bilayer, those molecules have to be nonpolar and they have to be small, okay? So small nonpolar molecules, okay? Or I should say small molecules with a nonpolar covalent bond, okay? can diffuse passively through those tails, and they can make it from the outside to the inside and vice versa, without having to be assisted in any way by a protein. Okay, so nonpolar covalent molecules out there that are important to us. Two biggies, okay, oxygen, which is very electronegative, but it's bonded to itself. Okay, so those electrons are square right in the middle of that covalent bond. So oxygen, molecular oxygen, O2, okay, is a nonpolar molecule, right? Yes? Okay, carbon dioxide is another one. Okay, so 
carbon dioxide and oxygen can both move freely through this membrane without having to be assisted by any kind of proteins at all. They're small, they're nonpolar, they can make it through the tails, they can diffuse on in, right? Um, if we keep a higher concentration of oxygen outside of the cell than we have inside of the cell, the oxygen is always going to be diffusing in to the cells, okay? So do you do that? Do you keep a low concentration of oxygen inside of your cells? Yes, you do, right? What are you doing with your oxygen inside of the cell? You give it to the mitochondria, right? Aerobic respiration, and it keeps using it and making ATP, right? Um, you keep using the supply of oxygen inside of your cells, so the concentration of oxygen inside of the cells is low, lower than it is out here in the environment, right? So the oxygen is just diffusing on in. You don't have to use ATP to get oxygen into your cells. It diffuses in because it's small and nonpolar. It can make it through those tails. Likewise, the carbon dioxide you're producing as a byproduct of that reaction is small and nonpolar. There's a higher concentration of that inside the cells than there is out here, so the carbon dioxide can diffuse out. Okay, all you got to do is transport it to the lungs, and it'll diffuse out into the environment, right? So that's good. Two things that you need to do that are very important. You need to get the oxygen in, and you need to get the carbon dioxide out. You can use diffusion for both of those. You don't have to spend ATP in order to move oxygen and carbon dioxide out. You got to transport it to the lungs. Fine, I'll give you that, right? But you don't actually have to transport it across the cell membrane. All the other things that are not small and nonpolar, if you need to get those across the membrane, you do need to spend some ATP to do it. So any molecule out there that is polar, okay, that has polar covalent bonds, you're going to have to do some transporting. You're going to have to do some assisting, okay? You don't necessarily have to use ATP to do it, but it's going to require at least a channel through which it can move, right? Um, large molecules like glucose, um, they can't make it through, right? Um, they have two problems there. It's polar, right? It dissolves in water. It's polar. It cannot uh, get through those tails. Glucose molecule is also pretty big, right? Um, larger than this gap between these phospholipid tails, right? So its size is prohibiting it as well. So even nonpolar molecules, right, if they're large, have to be assisted, okay? So only small nonpolar molecules can diffuse through that membrane unassisted. Everything else needs to be either given a channel through which it can flow or actively transported if it's going up a concentration gradient. So anything, you know, the best way to remember it is small nonpolar molecules can diffuse through. Everything else needs help in one way or another, right? So unless it's small and nonpolar, it's going to have to have a protein assist to get across. So selectively permeable, okay? Very specific things can cross that membrane. And not many things out there are that, okay? There are not many small nonpolar molecules floating around out there in the grand scheme, right? So most things need help, which is why you have so many proteins, okay? And that cell membrane, every, there's such a close relationship between the shape of a protein and what it actually does. For everything you need to transport, okay, across that membrane, you need a different protein to do it, okay? You need to have the full complement in those cells. So you're gonna, it's gonna be a lot of proteins uh, that span that membrane. That's why your DNA is so big, right? Six feet, right? Two, two and a half billion bases worth of information to make proteins, many of which are, are transport proteins. Okay. So we're talking about two things here, right? We're talking about polarity again, and we will continue to talk about polarity over and over and over again because it's important. And we're also talking about um, how and where you get the energy to move something, okay? So the charge on it, polar versus nonpolar, is going to determine... Uh, a lot of whether or not it can diffuse across the membrane. If you have a high concentration of something on the inside of a cell and a low concentration on the outside of a cell, not much of it's going to be diffusing in. It's going to be diffusing out. If I go up here right, and uh, get my French press out and make a big pot of coffee, eventually uh, you people in the back are going to start smelling coffee, and it's going to be good too, right? Because I don't get the cheap stuff. If you know me, you know that about me, right? So uh, what is that, right? Uh, in your apartment, if you make coffee, eventually everyone in the house or everybody in the apartment will know it, right? Uh, bacon is an excellent example. You all, everybody knows when somebody's cooking bacon, 
I can tell when somebody's cooking bacon in my building of my apartment, not just in the actual apartment itself, right? Diffusion, right? What is that? Diffusion. Yeah, things spread out in nature. That's laws of the universe. It's not just what happens with bacon and coffee, right? Things spread out. Universally, things spread out, okay? Um, very high concentration of bacon molecules, for lack of a better, for lack of a better phrase, right, in your kitchen as you start that process. As time goes by, those molecules will diffuse out through your apartment, and then every room in the house will smell equally of bacon. Could you think of something better than that? Not me, right? Uh, I can, I, in my, on my, my jogging route that I usually do in Arlington, I go right between the McDonald's and the Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? And you, you, there's some diffusion going on there, right? Arlington is smelling more and more like fried chicken and Big Macs by the day, right? Diffusing out, okay? Um, if we have a little fish bowl with some water in it uh, and we have a little dropper with some red dye, we can drop a little bit of red dye in this fish bowl, and it's eventually going to spread out until it is uniformly concentrated along that fish bowl. That is diffusion. There's no, uh, no magic happening here. Uh, we know this. We've known this our entire lives that things diffuse. Okay? Uh, if I showed you a short... I'm actually going to do this. I've been talking about doing it for three years now. I've never actually done it. I'm going to make some film, right? Um, and it's going to be a, a cup of coffee. It's going to be kind of an art piece, right? Just a, a, a cup of coffee, right, on film. And there's going to be some creamer in it, and that film is going to be that creamer slowly spreading out and diffusing within that coffee. What would you think if you saw that? Would you be freaked out? That, you see that every day. Well, I don't, because I don't put creamer in my coffee, because I drink the good stuff, right? Um, let's say that I take uh, the same video and I show it to you, and this video shows you a cup of coffee that has creamer diffused within it, and all that creamer you can slowly watch goes back to a single point. What would you think? I was doing it backwards, right? Um, this whole diffusion thing is one way, right? Things tend to diffuse from the highest to the lowest concentration, right? And this is based on these molecules bouncing around, okay? They just kind of bounce around randomly, it's called Brownian motion, right? And that bouncing around of these molecules, which is the speed of which is related to things like temperature and size of the molecule and things like that, right? Uh, as these molecules bounce around, they'll slowly start to spread and diffuse out, all right? Um, because they are bouncing around randomly like that, is there the smallest chance that if you have a cup of coffee with creamer in it that just randomly alone all those creamer molecules could end up all in one place? No. Yes, but it's so absurdly unlikely, right, that you will never see it happen. Okay, you will never see it happen. So much so that when you would see a video of the coffee cup, you would say, oh, well, he's obviously doing it in in reverse, right? Um, this is not just how things spread out. This is, how, this is why we perceive time moving forward, right? Um, when we see something going against diffusion, we interpret that as time going in the other direction, right? This, uh, this laws of diffusion and things spreading out through time, right, gives us the perception of time moving in the direction that it does, which is a different course, like general relativity. All right, um, we can do it with two droppers at the same time. Here we have a red dropper and a yellow dropper. And we can drop them, right, on either side, and they will both diffuse independently of each other, right? When they get to this point, is the red going to stop here and the yellow going to stop there? No, they're going to keep going, right? So you know about this diffusion stuff. I mean, you can predict what's going to happen fairly easily, right? You probably could when you were in second grade, okay? So we're going to make some hay out of this, right? We're going to take this diffusion thing and we're going to really run with it as far as we possibly can, okay? So there's a force being applied here, right? Molecules are moving, okay, over a distance. So that is a force, okay? What is fueling this? Is, what, is, what is fueling these molecules moving around? They contain some sort of energy, kinetic energy, heat. You can call it that if you want. Right? And as long as they have that, they're going to bounce around and diffuse. Right? The only way you can keep things from diffusing is if you take all their kinetic energy out of them, which means get them really, really cold. Right? 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 Okay, good. Uh, and so, you know, it's just this process of, of heat, right? And heat transfer is going to keep these things bouncing around and moving around until they're maximally diffused. Okay? Uh, which is good. So if we're talking about forces being applied here and energy being converted here, we can talk about this as a way 
to fuel reactions in your body. Okay, um, we can rely on diffusion sometimes to make things happen for us. Um, if you're going to have a molecule move around your body, it's going to happen one of two ways. Either you're going to use ATP to do it, or you're not. Okay, you will want to use as many diffusion examples as you possibly can to keep yourself alive, right? Um, either you're going to pay for it with your ATP, or you can let the universe pay for it, quote unquote, right? Um, if you can have a system work that is diffusion based. Right, then you don't have to invest your own ATP. You can just kind of let the, let the universe spring forward and pay the bill right? through diffusion alone. And we're going to make a lot of, like I said, we're going to make a lot. We're going to go far with this whole diffusion thing. We're going to use it a lot. Uh, examples will be coming to you over the next couple of weeks. So osmosis is a special case of diffusion. Okay? Osmosis is the diffusion of water across a selectively permeable membrane. Okay, so here we have a lovely tub of water, and here's a selectively permeable membrane. We've talked about a selectively permeable membrane in here already, haven't we? About, what, 10 minutes ago, we talked about one. Okay, for example, your cell membrane is a good selectively permeable membrane. Let small nonpolar things uh, pass back and forth. By the way, um, you have these really small, really small transmembrane proteins called aquaporins. Uh, in your cell membranes as well. Um, and water can pass back and forth between the inside and the outside of your cell, not by using ATP, just because it has a dedicated water channel where water can move back and forth. On this side of the uh, container, there is nothing dissolved in here. It is just pure 100% water. Okay. On this side, you have some things dissolved in the water. Um, in this case, it is protein molecules. It could be salt. It could be sugars. It could be anything dissolved in there, right? Anything that goes in the solution. The concentration of water over here is what? In percent. Hundred percent. Nothing but pure water over here. The concentration of water over here is something less than one hundred percent, right? So if water is going to be going from high to low concentration, water is going to be moving more in this direction than in this direction. It's going to go both ways, right? But it's going to go more in this direction than it is in that direction. Does this mean that the water level over here will drop and the water level over here will go up? If we move more water over in this direction than that direction, isn't it going to go down over here and up over there? Yeah. Absolutely it is. Absolutely. Right? Um, it's not going to do it until this is completely empty and this is completely full. Right? Eventually, the amount of force pushing the water over in this direction is going to be balanced by the amount of the force of gravity pushing down on it. We're going to call that equilibrium. Osmotic pressure versus gravity. Right? But this side will go down, and this side will go up. If you do this in space, right, where there, you're not under the regime of gravity, it's conceivable that all the water could, in fact, go over to the other side, as long as you have enough space for the, the water to accommodate on that other side. Right? So yes, absolutely. And this can happen in your, uh, with your cells, in your body as well. We're not just talking about uh, abstract concepts. We're talking about uh, how do you regulate water balance in your own body. Okay. So here we have a 2% sucrose solution. It's in a selectively permeable membrane. We can call this a cell if you'd like to. It's sort of our analogy that we're trying to teach you about without actually telling you that it's a cell. Um, and we have three beakers. Here's a beaker of distilled water. Here's a beaker of a 10% sucrose solution. And here's a beaker of a 2% sucrose solution. So if we put this bag in this beaker, right, the highest concentration of water is inside or outside of the bag? Outside of the bag. So water is going to be moving to the inside of the bag more than to the outside. Um, and the bag is going to start to swell up. Or we could put the 2% sucrose solution in the 10% sucrose solution, and now the highest concentration of water is inside the bag, 98% to 90% water, right? And the water is going to move predominantly to the outside of the bag, and the bag is going to right, shrink back down again, right? Or I could put the 2% sucrose solution inside of a beaker with a 2% sucrose solution, and water is going to be moving back and forth between the two evenly, and the bag should maintain its, its shape. Okay. 
Now we can do this to your cells. We can get some of your red blood cells out of your out of your finger, right? Um, and we can do things to it, right? If we take that slide with some of your blood on it, right, and put a little drop of fresh water on it, all of a sudden, right, uh, those blood cells are in a very dilute solution, okay, less solutes dissolved in the water that we dropped on it than there are inside the cell, right? And so the water is going to start moving inside of your red blood cells and they're going to swell up. And you can, if you do that uh, enough right, and put enough fresh water there, you can actually get them to rupture. It's kind of interesting in kind of a perverse sort of way. Um, likewise, we can put some uh, really, really salty water on your red blood cells, right? And we can watch the water leave them and they'll crunch up and look like little paper, crunched up paper bags actually, okay? Or we can take some of your red blood cells and put some saline solution on it that's equivalent in uh, salinity and all that to your own uh, bodily fluids and water will move back and forth between the two. And we won't recognize a size difference, okay? So there's a couple of terms that we use to describe this, which is uh, the, the fear of all biology 101 students trying to keep these things straight, right? It's not easy. Um, when you're comparing two solutions to each other across the membrane, um, if they are equal, in their concentration, we call them isotonic, okay? So this is an isotonic situation here, right? There's the concentration of water on one side of the membrane is the same as it is on the other. Water is moving back and forth at an equal rate, okay, in both directions. Those solutions are isotonic. If you don't have the same concentration, then one of the, concent or one of the solutions is hypotonic and another is hypertonic. Okay, the solution that has the most stuff dissolved in it is hypertonic. Okay, so the most concentrated solutes is going to be hypertonic, which means if you're looking at the where the water goes, the water moves from hypo to hyper. Okay, so the hypotonic solution is going to have the lowest concentration of solutes, which is going to represent, and I'm sorry to be confusing, the highest concentration of water. So the water is going to be moving. If the solutes can't move. It's only the water that can move, right? So the water is going to move from hype O to hype er. So the hypertonic solution has the highest number of solutes, so it has the lower concentration of water. So water moves from hypo to hyper. Now, you've heard stories about this with human experience, right? It can go one in either direction. Um, there was a, a lady in Sacramento who, uh, right before I left California to, to move out here, um, was took part in a in a radio contest, right? And it was called Hold Your Wee for a Wee, okay? Um, and you drink, it was, I don't know how much it was, uh, uh, 12 ounces of water every half an hour, 45 minutes. And whoever could go the longest without urinating Right, one a wee, and this was back when it was hard to get a wee, right? So, I mean, you, you know, I can give it a garage sale, you know? Um, back when it was hard to get a wee, um, a couple of years ago. And, you know, she's drinking water, drinking water, drinking water, and she kind of started to feel not so good, so she bailed out of the contest. And she went home and she took a nap and she died. Died, okay, um, for just these kinds of reasons, right here, okay? What was she doing to herself? Drinking fresh water, drinking fresh water, drinking fresh water. What situation did she create for herself by drinking all of that fresh water? She made herself do this, right? Her interstitial fluids got really, really dilute. A lot of water started rushing into her cells, and her cells started to swell up. What killed her eventually, right? Well, I, I could ask you this, right? If you start swelling up all the cells in your body, uh, where is the region of swelling that's going to kill you first? Brainstem, brainstem, right, right back there, right? Um, controlling the action of uh, changing heart rate and controlling the action of the diaphragm. Um, if you block nervous signals coming out of your brainstem, uh, your heart will still beat. It generates its own, its own electrical signal, but you will no longer be able to control the rate of increase or decrease. You can live with that. That's kind of fine, right? Um, breathing is a different story, though, right? Breathing is kind of this com combination of... Uh, conscious and unconscious action, right? You can make yourself breathe if you want to, right? Right? Or you can decide not to think about it, and that's just fine. You don't die when you, don't, when you decide not to. I mean, do you have to think about breathing all of the time? No, but you can if you want to, and that's fine, right? Um, so you can consciously make yourself breathe and make yourself not breathe, and all that is fine, 
right? When you go to sleep, you don't stop breathing, right? Your you know, nervous system takes over and it kind of breathes for you, unless you block those signals coming out of the brainstem, okay? So as soon as she fell asleep, she stopped breathing and she, and she died, right? So, so you're saying if you like, chug a lot of water, um, if, you, if you drink a lot of fresh water at a rate faster than your kidneys can, can handle, you run a risk of swelling your brainstem and dying. Yeah, if she would have stayed awake. If she could have stayed awake, well, she would have processed all those fluids. She, she might have, have been okay. Right? So, but, I mean, you don't feel well, what do you do? You take a nap, right? See how you feel later, right? And it was the worst thing that she could have done. Right, because as soon as you lose that, that ability to unconsciously control your diaphragm, as soon as you fall asleep, you're going to stop breathing, and it's not going to get better from there. Right? Um, or, okay, or um, you can be lost at a raft out Robinson Crusoe style out at sea. Uh, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Why can't you drink seawater? It's too because it's this. Right? You start drinking seawater, and now your interstitial fluids right are really, really salty. Okay, and all the fluids start coming out, okay, of your of your bodily fluids, and your cells start to to crumple up, and that's not going to go well either. Okay, um, or you can just drink a lot of Gatorade, which is the isotonic solution to your own body chemistry. Right, you can drink as much of that as you want, right? without risking. You know, you're going to have problems if you drink as much as you want, but uh, you won't have these problems. You'll live through it. You'll just pee a lot. Okay. <laughs> Good. I mean, you've experienced, I mean, if anybody's gone to the, uh, McDonald's lately, speaking of McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken or, or whatever, right, and you eat a Big Mac, right, oh, let's make it easy, right, you can get a quarter pounder with cheese, right, um, and you can eat it and wait an hour and you'll gain, you'll have gained more than a quarter pound of mass, right, uh, you, you can eat this thing, you'll gain a pound, right, even though it is only a quarter pound, right, um, you're taking in an unbelievable, unbelievable amount of salt, when you eat a quarter pounder, right? If you eat really, really salty things, sometimes you can feel your hands swell up. Yes? Anybody? Yeah. Ever do that? Eat saltier things, right? And your, your hands can, you, you can actually feel your hands swelling up, okay? I, yeah, yeah, I do too. I, I'm, I'm with you, man. Eat a can of Pringles and you'll start to, you'll start to swell up a little bit, right? Um, anytime you eat something really, really salty, you know, you're starting to do this, okay? How do you keep your interstitial fluids from getting so salty that you start losing water and fluids out of your cells? you can retain a lot of water in those interstitial fluids, right? So you eat the quarter pounder with cheese, right? You get a quarter pound of mass from the quarter pounder with cheese, and you get a lot of salt, and you have to retain a pound of water, right, uh, in order to balance out those fluids so you don't start leaking all those fluids out of your cells, okay? So you have to load up. You have to make your interstitial fluids isotonic with your cells, and you just ate a lot of salt, right? So you're going to be retaining a lot of water until your kidneys can catch up get rid of the salt. Once you get rid of the salt, then you can get rid of the excess water. It's called bloating, right? And it happens after you eat really, really salty things. All right. So you have uh, familiarity with these concepts, right? Um, atonicity, you know, just the simple thing of water diffusing. Water is going to go wherever the highest solutes is, the highest concentration of solute. Um, and that's not something that your body is really directing the course of. It's the universe directing that course through diffusion. It's the diffusion of water as opposed to the diffusing of solutes. If the solutes can't diffuse, the water will diffuse instead. Speak. Second, before that, uh, maybe that, that guy mm -hmm. in the water, if she would have eaten like a quarter pound right after, she probably would have been If she would have eaten some salty things, she might have been okay, right? Um, she, if, if she could have stopped her cells from swelling. By increasing the salinity of her interstitial fluid, right, then she she might not have, have had those kinds of problems. She would have swelled entirely, as opposed to just some of the just her individual cells, right. She would have put more fluid between her cells as opposed to inside. Because if you're going to put fluid between your cells, that's okay, ish, right. Um, if you're going to be putting fluid into your cells, that's that's a problem, right. You start compressing nerves and things like that, and that didn't end well. But that's thinking about things the right way, right? I mean, ultra marathoners, just like you know our colleague over here, whose office is next to mine, she did a 38 miler this weekend, right? Um, and once you started hitting those 30, 40, 50 mile runs, right, you have to literally start eating salt packets along the way, right? Your 
sweating out so much salt, you need to replenish that quickly, right? And if you do that at an inappropriate weight, you can start, or at an inappropriate rate and you get too much salt in, you can really start retaining a lot of fluids while you're running and you can gain 10 pounds in 15 or 20 miles. And that's not that good either. So uh, when you do those ultra marathon runs, which we're all gonna do, right? Um, you get weighed about every 20 miles or so, just to make sure you're not, if you're changing rate rapidly, something bad is happening to you with regards to this. Okay, did you start losing a lot of water? Did you start retaining a lot of water sometime in the last 20 miles? And that can be indicative of very bad things. Race, race ending things. Like you can die or you can stop, you know, whichever way. But those ultra marathons aren't about winning, they're about surviving, right? Like can you be on your feet for 100 miles? All right, so again, just gonna drive this home a little bit more, right? Here we have another example of the same thing that shows you this volume change uh, better than the earlier example did. Here I have a nice YouTube, uh, huh, I just may have infringed copyright. Um, <laughs> here we have a, a nice U-joint, right? Uh, that's better. With a nice selectively permeable membrane some, somewhere uh, right here in the middle. Google's going to come after me. Um, and we have a lot of things dissolved on this side and not too many of them dissolved on this side, right? Um, and the solutes can't move from one side into another. They're blocked by the selectively permeable membrane. So we can't move solutes over to this side, but we can move water over to that side. Okay, so we can go ahead and, and we're going to go ahead and do that. Um, if we start moving that water over to this side, eventually we're going to come to a point where the concentration of water on this side actually is equal to the concentration over here. And that's where it's going to stop, okay, in a zero gravity kind of world, right? We're probably not going to get to this point. Eventually, the water, when it starts moving over, is going to be under more and more a higher regime of gravity, or there's going to be more gravitational force pulling down on it. When the amount of force of the water trying to equalize that pressure between the two sides or equalize that concentration between the two sides is equal to the force of gravity pushing down on this side, then things are going to not stop. The water's not going to stop going back and forth, right? But it's going to start going back and forth equally. Okay. So osmosis, good? We're good. So it is diffusion, okay? But it's the diffusion of water, special case. So on Wednesday in lab, these are the kinds of things we're going to be doing just to prepare you, uh, prepare you for that. We're going to be looking at the different kind of factors that affect diffusion rate. So you can make things diffuse faster uh, by doing things to them. Okay? If you have a steeper concentration gradient, okay, that can increase the rate of diffusion. Let me show you what I mean by steeper concentration gradient. I like this room because I can use the lovely document camera. I think I have a pen. <coughs> All right. Can we see? Ugh. Hey, I don't have to erase that. I can just kind of turn the whole thing. That's funny. Think of that. Nice. All right. So I want to get this water to move across this membrane, right? So in this case, water is going to move which way? It's going to go this way, which is 100% concentration over to that side, and everything is fine, right? Can I make it move faster? Can I make it diffuse faster? I can. If I put even more stuff over here, now it's going to diffuse at a faster rate. Okay? So it's going to be moving over this direction, but it's going to be doing so faster. It is a steeper concentration gradient. Okay? I, can I slow it down? How? I can add some stuff over here and slow it back down again. Ta-da! Right? So the concentration gradient, how steep is it? Right? If I have a steep concentration gradient, right, things are going to diffuse more, more rapidly or faster than if I had a shallow concentration gradient. Now, another thing that affects concentration or um, the diffusion rate is the size of the molecules. So let me draw another one. My 
minute. Okay. That's water, believe it or not. It's our selectively permeable membrane. So if I'm talking about these big black dots diffusing now, are they going to diffuse more rapidly or more slowly than little red dots? These are going to diffuse nice and slow, much slower than these over here. I mean, just watch a football game, right? Uh, if you have a race downfield between a lineman and, and a wide receiver, who's going to win? There's a mass-velocity relationship, right? The more mass you have, the more energy it takes to move, okay? Especially if you're talking about moving quickly. So uh, size of the molecule affects the diffusion rate similarly, right? Larger molecules take a longer time to get moving. It's going to take a longer time uh, to diffuse than smaller ones. If I wanted those molecules to diffuse even faster, one thing I could do is make them really, really hot. I, might, I could take a pile of coffee beans, okay, and I can set them up here, and eventually, it'll take a while, eventually the people in the back row might smell coffee, right? Um, or I can put them in a grinder, and I can pour a bunch of hot water over them, right, and really increase the temperature of those, water, of those little coffee molecules, so to speak, right? And they're going to diffuse faster, okay? Um, the hotter something is, the more rapidly it will diffuse. So small, hot, very concentrated things are going to diffuse very, very quickly, right? Big, cold, right? Not very concentrated things are going to diffuse very, very slowly. For example, you in this room. You're big and you're cold and you're not particularly, uh, well, you're not particularly concentrated to speak with, right? So you can diffuse around this room as you will, right? But you're not going to do it very quickly. And if I, if we, I mean, we could do an experiment. We could send everybody out in the hallway and we could come back in again. They'll say, sit down. Are you all going to pile up in the back four corner, uh, back four chairs in the corner over there? Just like in a big pile of students in the back corner? No, you're not. I mean, you're pretty well diffused right now. That's what students do, right? Um, if you have a bunch of kindergartners, right, they diffuse very rapidly. If you have a bunch of adults, they diffuse very slowly. Yes? I mean, you can look at, you can see this in a shopping mall on a Friday night, right? You can see the relationship between size and diffusion. People do it too. Good stuff. Right. So we're going to be investigating all of this in lab on, on Wednesday, so don't let this stray too far from your, the front of your head. Speak. Um, when you said steeper concentration gradient, you just mean adding more stuff? Um, what's, the different, what's the difference in, in the concentration of the solutes from the side you're diffusing from to the region you're diffusing to, right? So um, if all of us are piled up in the corner, well, not me, right, but all of you, I'm not going to be any part of this, right? We're all piled up in the corner over here, and nobody else is in the rest of the room. That's going to be a very steep concentration gradient, okay? As you get farther and farther away from that region of pile of students, right, there's going to get very, very few of them very, very quickly. Very steep gradient. Versus right now, um, there's a concentration gradient in here. I mean, nobody's in those back two rows. Um, I don't know what's going on in this row right here. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is our membrane right here, right? And Kelly is a transmembrane protein right here. Anybody who wants to get from one side to another, that's good, Kelly. Um, we have a concentration gradient here, but it's not a very steep one, okay? If we started, if we got up and diffused, eventually we would fill in those back few rows in the back, sort of, and we'd probably pull people out of this row over here and some over here, right? So we have a concentration gradient now, but it's very shallow. We're not, we can diffuse around this room, and that's fine, but we wouldn't do so very quickly. Right? The diffusion rate of us all piled in this corner, and I say, okay, go ahead and diffuse. You'll diffuse very rapidly in that case. Well, you should anyway, right? Uh, versus right now, if I say diffuse, we would diffuse much more slowly. Good? All right. So we're still talking about crossing a membrane here, right? And like I said, there's two things going on. There are these charge-based uh, considerations, are you polar or nonpolar? And then there's size-based considerations, are you big or are you small, right? And now there's this other consideration that we have to keep in mind as well. Um, when we're moving something across a membrane, or if we want something to move across the membrane, are we doing it, are we moving things up a concentration gradient, making a concentrated solution even more concentrated, or are we going down a concentration gradient, okay? Which we can just now say as letting things diffuse, okay? If we have a case uh, like with oxygen or carbon dioxide, like I mentioned earlier, where you have, uh, let's use oxygen, 
okay, where you have a high concentration of oxygen molecules outside of the cell and not much oxygen inside of the cell because your mitochondria keeps using it and combining it with hydrogen to make water, right? Um, this oxygen molecules are going to keep diffusing in, okay? And you don't need to use ATP to do that, okay? They're going to go ahead and diffuse in just by using the laws of the universe, so to speak, right? Um, you don't need to actively transport or use any ATP whatsoever to get that oxygen inside of your cells. You can just let it diffuse in because it's small and nonpolar, it can do that, okay? No protein channels required, no ATP needed. The oxygen is just gonna flow in, which is good because you need a lot of it. And how would, how would life be if you had to use ATP to get oxygen into your cells, right? That'd be a, that'd be a losing proposition, all right, from the start. Uh, okay, for another uh, example right here, let's say glucose, okay? We need to get glucose into that cell as well, right? But glucose is kind of big and it's kind of polar, as evidenced by the fact that it does, you can dissolve sugar in water, right? So we have two problems here. It's size, it's bigger than those fatty acid tails, and it's polar. It's got the opposite charge type, right, on those covalent bonds. So, however, right, we can still diffuse, right? those mitochondria keep using the glucose just like it keeps using the oxygen. So there's gonna be perpetually lower concentration of glucose inside of the cell than on the outside. So the glucose can go ahead and go down a concentration gradient if we give it the ability to do so, okay? It cannot diffuse across the membrane like the oxygen can, right? It's too big, it's too polar, right? As long as we give it a channel, it can diffuse in. So here, we're not having to use any ATP here as well except the ATP that we had to use to build the protein, right? After we build the protein, the transport is free, okay? We don't have to use ATP to do that. The glucose can just diffuse in, all right? We good? We good? So in both, this, in both of these cases, we don't have to use ATP here, right? Um, regardless of whether or not we can diffuse through or make a protein, as long as we can diffuse, go down a concentration gradient, we don't have to spend ATP on that, all right? So that's what's gonna di distinguish between active and passive transport. Which way of the concentration gradient are things moving? Now in this case, right, and this is like our cystic fibrosis example from last time as well, those chloride ions that we were trying to move outside of the cell. Here we have a lot of these things, chloride ions outside of the cell, and we wanna move even more of them to the outside of the cell, okay? Now, in this case, we have a pile of students in the front of the room. A couple more students come in, and we want to pile them up on the top front of the room as well. We're trying to maintain a concentration gradient here, right? Um, and that's not easy to do. You do have to spend ATP to do that. Diffusion would prefer these molecules go in what direction? In, right? We're trying to keep them out, okay? So we constantly have to be using ATP in order to maintain that concentration gradient. So this is the ATP that you have, right, in your body right here, this molecule you're using to carry energy around, okay? Um, and uh, you use about 2,000 calories a day of that ATP, right? That's how much ATP it costs for you to maintain your concentration gradients, about 2,000 calories worth a day, okay? As soon as you lose the ability to maintain concentration gradients, you die, okay? Uh, it's not cheap pretty expensive actually. So maintaining your sodium potassium pumps in your neurons, right? Keeping your chloride ions on the outside, maintaining proper ion balance throughout your entire body, um, maintaining all of those concentration gradients that you need to maintain is what life is. As soon as you lose the ability to do that, you begin diffusing, which is death, okay? And you are recycled into the next generation of things. Yeah, it's inevitable. Eventually, I mean, the universe always wins in the end, right? You can only keep yourself from diffusing for so long, 80 years, give or take. Take a lot. So as long as we don't have to spend ATP to make it happen, we're gonna call it passive transport, okay? So here we built a channel, okay? We built the protein, lice, amino acid sequence, sprung into coils and folds, secondary structure, became tertiary structured in this three-dimensional arrangement, and glucose can go through it, okay? Now, because we don't have to go up a concentration gradient, we can just let the glucose go down the concentration gradient, we don't have to spend ATP, 
All you have to do is provide the channel and the glucose will just diffuse in by itself. Okay, so passive, passive transport. So the whole thing about passive, it doesn't use ATP? That's what makes passive transport passive. Right, and that can happen as long as you're diffusing. If you cannot diffuse, then you must use active transport. Are those protein transports also selective? They are. They are. Because you don't want things to be a free-for-all, because that sort of defeats the purpose. Yeah. Right? So for everything you want to transport, you pretty much have a dedicated transporter for so it. No Passive and active. And it goes, in, it, it goes down its concentration gradient. Whatever way is highest, that's the way it's going to be coming from, right? So that's the downside of it. Because you're not controlling it, its direction, right, it, it can go either way. So as long as you're maintaining a concentration gradient by, well, how do you keep your interstitial glucose level high? You eat sugar, right? And when your sugar gets low, your liver dumps it out into your body, right? If you come across the unfortunate situation where the amount of glucose in your cells is less than it is on the outside, right, then you have a big problem, right? You can no longer make ATP. And the glucose is going to start moving in the other direction. It's going to start moving out of those transporters, right? So the good thing about those passive transporters is you don't have to pay for them. You don't have to use ATP for them. The bad news is they will go either way, okay? So as long as they're going down to concentration, as long as you want them to go down to concentration gradient from one side to another, that's fine. Right? But it's always going to go down the concentration gradient. So if you get a misbalance with those things, then very bad things are going to start happening very quickly. So with an active transporter, right, <coughs> this could be uh, the alternative. Active transport is going to be something that we use anytime we want to build a concentration gradient from a diffused state. So here we have our calcium ions on the outside. Uh, we don't want any calcium ions on the inside of this cell. So we want to take these other two and we want to spit them out. Okay? We want to cross that membrane. However, to do so, we have to go up a concentration gradient. So we're going to need some ATP. So we're going to take an ATP molecule, and we're going to attach it onto this protein transporter right down here in the bottom somewhere, wherever it fits in its shape. Okay? Uh, when we attach that ATP, it's going to spread open these two little uh, channels right there. The thing's going to twist a little bit, and it's going to provide just enough room for these two calcium ions to fit right there in that channel. We're going to go ahead and break that third phosphate group off, liberating some of that energy and transferring it over into the protein. Okay, we're adding energy to it. We're shuffling energy around. We change the shape of the thing. When we change the shape, it starts to squirt those two calcium ions across that membrane. Okay, and we go ahead then, take the ADP and the phosphate, uh, dump it off of the protein, and the protein is ready to go again, returning back to its original shape. So we had to take some of the energy out of an ATP molecule in order to kinetically change the shape of that protein. And in doing so, we were able to grab a couple of calcium ions and shove them across that membrane up the concentration gradient. So now there are even more calcium ions on the outside than there were. Okay? Good. Active and passive transport. I have a question. Speak. If the whole body is made of cells, People are referring to them pushing things out. Like, where are they pushing out? It's a good question, right? Um, usually interstitial fluid. I mean, when you're talking about your neurons, um, you're having these sodium-potassium pumps, right? And it keeps pushing the sodium to the outside of your cells. Right. And they kind of reside there, okay, uh, until, they, until you give them the opportunity to rush back in. You know, so they just kind of um, they hang out. <laughs> yeah, they just kind of hang out right on the outside, yeah. The, qu the question, I mean, the, the, the question here is when you transport something across the cell membrane to the interstitial fluid, does it actually leave your body when you do that? You know, um, how integrated of a multicellular organism are you? You know, I don't know if there's an answer to that. There are other ways to move uh, substances, so to speak, across uh, or into cells, I should say, um, that don't necessarily require membrane crossing, but they almost always require the use of ATP. We can undergo the process of endocytosis. Here we're not taking individual molecules and moving them across a membrane. Now we're actually taking a bunch of molecules from the outside of the cell and encapsulating them into what we're going to call a vesicle. So what we can do, we've got a bunch of junk out here that we want to bring into the cell. What we can do, we can start pulling in a pocket 
on that cell membrane in the hopes that when we do that, we capture a lot of those molecules from the outside inside of that in-pocketing. We pull it in until the two lips, or the two, the two sides uh, lip regions of that cell membrane kind of get close to each other, and they just kind of pop together again from a cute little bubble. All right. Um, so now we have a phospholipid bilayer sphere with some of these molecules on the inside. Okay, it's obviously going to take ATP for you to do this, right? But you can bring things in in bulk. But you did not cross a membrane. Okay, so you might have to do some other things with it. It's not dissolved inside of your cell yet. If we do this, we call it endocytosis. Endo in cytosis, right? Bring it into the cell. Um, you can expunge things from the cell the opposite way, right? Just kind of by moving that vesicle back to the outside, right? We're going to call it exocytosis. So in this case of the endocytosis, we are actually making that vesicle out of what was cell membrane, okay? Um, and when we have exocytosis going on, we're taking the phospholipid bilayer of that vesicle and actually making it now as part of uh, the cell membrane. So we're fusing those vesicle components with the membrane um, and making the vesicle out of the membrane in order to do that. So we can bring things into the cell via endocytosis. We can take them out of the cell via exocytosis. Okay. If it's an actual solid kind of thing okay, that we're actually bringing in, uh, I'll show you endocytosis. Let me show you some eye candy first before I start this next conversation. Here's actual endocytosis in real life, so to speak, of cholesterol. So we ate some big beefy steak. We've got a bunch of cholesterol in our body. We want to bring it into the cell. Okay. Perhaps we want to put it into our cell membranes right, for temperature regulation and fluidity regulation and things like that. So here is all the cholesterol. There's a bunch of it right here. So we're just going to make a big in-pocketing and make a vesicle, capturing as much of that cholesterol as we can. And then we're going to put it somewhere, fuse it with an organelle somewhere in the cell and do something with it. Now, if we're actually talking about engulfing an entire solid particulate of something, like parts of your immune system engulfing bacteria, for example, we would call that phagocytosis, or cell eating, in quotes. Okay, so phagocytosis, bringing actual solid things into the cell, like a bacteria. You know, as this bacteria is brought in, it's going to be wrapped in a vesicle, obviously, uh, which is derived from the cell membrane. And then you can go ahead and act on it with some digestive enzymes and things like that and, and kill the bacteria. And then through exocytosis, you can expunge the byproducts of that digestion to the outside of the cell and then can go out to the, to the kidneys. Um, conversely, you can bring in liquids uh, in the same way, right? If you do that, it's called pinocytosis, P-I-N-O, cytosis, called, or cell drinking, quote-unquote. Both of these, phagocytosis and pinocytosis, are always going to require ATP. It's always going to be considered... Uh, active, active transport. The bacteria is not diffusing into the cell here, right? Here's an actual example of phagocytosis in action as uh, performed by a member of your immune system. You have a class of, uh, you have a class of white blood cells uh, called eosinophils. And eosinophils are very specialized in what they do. They will go around your body and they will attack parasitic worms. What do you think? Is that a good thing to have? Yeah. yeah, it is. We cook our meat a lot, right? Uh, so we don't have too much of a problem with parasitic worms. Maybe 10, 15,000 years ago, would you want part of your immune system to attack parasitic worms? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, you would. Right? Parasitic worms were much worse. I mean, places in South Carolina, you still have, you know, hookworm and things like that, right? And you use your eosinophils to attack these things, right? So here is um, a large single-cell macrophage, right, a part of your uh, immune system, a white blood cell, that is currently engulfing a trypanosome parasite, single-cell parasite right here, through the process of phagocytosis, okay? So this little worm right here is going to be engulfed into the cell, um, into a vesicle. The vesicle is going to be fused with a uh, lysosome, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, uh, and the bacteria, or the, uh, the endoparasite will be uh, digested and expunged through a phagos, uh, through a, you know, exocytosis out into the body where the parts can be recycled in the kidneys and sent down the drain, so to speak, right? Um, it's a lovely picture, though, don't you think? Gross. It is gross, but you do want that to happen. Yes. All right. Uh, what do you think? 
We good? All right. Um, I don't want to start a whole new, whole new thing in the next five minutes and then let you go. Um, next time, we'll talk about all the stuff inside of the cytoplasm, okay, including the nucleus. So we're still on our outside. Read the chapter on the membrane and read the chapter on cell anatomy, okay? I think that's two chapters in your textbook. So knock them both out between now and Wednesday. Um, I don't know what the numbers are. Um, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. So read both of those. And I'll see you on Wednesday.